Good evening, Salt Company. Let me uh, change this inflection here, get this out of the way. I'm doing some stage work. Excuse me. Okay, is everyone having a good night? We enjoying being here? That's great. Nice. My name's Zach, Zach Rao. I, I do international ministry here, which is like, I don't know, I work with people that aren't from here. Thank you, thank you. Um, we're going to have to go really fast tonight, so here's, here's the deal. Tonight, we're going on a biblical tour from Eden, page one of the Bible, to Zion. I should have done that backwards. E- Eden to Zion. Page one to the last page of the Bible. It's a topic that if you were here last time I preached, I was talking about bread, and I felt very confident about that. Um, heaven is something I feel a little bit less qualified for, so I would ask that you would actually just bow your heads again with me so I can ask God to just speak through me, because what we're going to be talking about tonight, it has eternal ramifications for our lives. So just bow your heads with me, Father. I just want people to understand clearly um, what I say tonight, not for my glory, but so that they may know you and so that your spirit would come to dwell in them. God, we love you, and we trust in your power and not our own. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you. So when I was on my honeymoon, hard shift, honeymoon, last summer, it was during the first week of June, my wife really wanted to go on a day hike and then camp overnight and then finally return to our really nice house that we were staying at the next day. And I said, sure, you know, because being a good husband, that means that you have to do things that your wife enjoys, even if it's not necessarily something that you yourself enjoy. So we're packing our food for the trip, and we're like planning on having like a nice steak dinner over a campfire, and it was really great. You know, we had this big plan. I was praying that bears wouldn't come and eat us in Wyoming, because that that could happen. So we set out on our adventure. We're all packed up. We're ready to go. I'm carrying like an AR-15, a spear, a knife, a Glock, and pretty much anything else you could think of. Um, Because I I don't know. I don't want to mess with no bear unless I can mess with it. I don't know. Anyway, here's the thing. This was our goal. There was a mountain about four or five-ish miles northwest of where we were staying, and its name is Jim Mountain. You can tell by the inflection how this is going to go. This is important because my wife loves mountains. She loves mountains. She loves nature. She loves climbing mountains. She loves rabbits. She really wants a rabbit. That's not related. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, honey. You're not getting a rabbit. Um, That's just not how it's going to work. Anyway... We're on this trail, and we're like fording a stream. Fording, it just means like you're crossing, but it sounds way cooler. We're fording a stream. Uh, There's a picture of it. Uh, Yeah, so that's like a fallen tree that was just like there, luckily, so we could like cross it. It was like, I don't know, two or three feet deep. It was wet, like water tends to be. Anyway, like we cross this stream. We're in the wilderness. We're pretty far out there. And we're about halfway through this hike, and I'm like sweating, and it's getting hot, and whatever. It's been a couple hours. We reach the base of a mountain, the mountain, Jim Mountain. And we can't find the trail, because even though it's June, and it's summertime, the base of the mountain is covered with like two or three feet of snow. I don't even get that. Like, I don't know how that's possible. And so we're sitting there, we're thinking about it, we're like... What do we do? The trail's not there anymore. You know, are we just going to give up? No, we decide, you know what? There's the face of the mountain right here that we can see, so let's just try climbing that. 
part of the mountain. So we just start our ascent, right? And it's so steep, and it's so snowy, and it's so muddy. I'm like falling over trying to climb up stuff, which like doesn't even make sense to me. And I'm like about to fall into like this valley that's like 600 feet down, and I'm like getting kind of angry about this. And we're like slowly plodding our way up the mountain, and it's just getting steeper and steeper, muddier, muddier, snowier, snowy, colder and colder. And I had this moment where I was thinking of that quote. And this is what I mean. The destination is the journey. Right? Like, life isn't a destination, it's a journey or something like that. But I tell you what, in that moment in my life, you could have never convinced me that was true. I was standing there on a mountain thinking to myself, this journey sucks. Okay? I'm tired. My wife's shins are bruised and bleeding because I was trying to climb rocks that fell on her and hit her shins. And we had, like, just been married for, like, three days at that point. And so we were starting things off really well. And I was thinking to myself, trying to climb this mountain, I don't really even care what it looks like at the top. The reward for this journey wasn't worth it. Okay? And so we, and by we, I mean me, decided we were not going to finish the ascent. So we went home. We never climbed it. And to this day, we remain the two only people that have yet to climb Jim Mountain in the family. Here's why I bring up that story. It could be true that I personally struggle to find joy when a plan doesn't go as planned. Or when an unforeseen problem arises, I can struggle to find joy. That's true to some extent, but I also think that as human beings, we should probably be doing a better job at looking at our destinations and trying to figure out whether or not our journeys are even worth it in the first place. Okay, like, is, is where we're headed actually worth the bumps in the road along the way? No one ever says the point of marriage is engagement, right? For those of you that are engaged, you totally vibe with me right now. You understand what I'm saying. But for those of you that um, aren't, you know, maybe someday you'll figure that out. But in, engagement, like, compared to marriage, it's like, it's, it doesn't even compare. And, like, if you've been married, you understand that. I'm just going to drop that analogy for now because, you know, whatever. Um, Anyway, what I'm trying to say is we have to find the right destination that's actually worth the journey, that's worth the struggle, that's worth the strife um, to accomplish, right? Like, we have to know where we're going in this life, otherwise we'll just be aimless. And I think that one, for most of us in this room, if someone were to ask us about heaven, if someone were going to ask us about the end of the story, it would be really hard to come up with a good answer, right? And that's not necessarily anyone's fault, but it seems like today there's like this, this disconnect between us today as Christians or people that are trying to figure out what Christianity is and what's actually in store for us down the road. Or, and if, by the way, if you're one of those people that are like just here because you're here checking it out, welcome. You are loved. Here's what I'm saying. I want tonight to paint a picture for you that shows what the hope of Christianity is. Okay? And so whether you're an unbeliever or whether you don't know or whether you are a believer, I think for all of you that this really applies because if you're going to choose to follow Christ, you have to know where you're going. You have to know the end of your story. Otherwise, you probably won't make it. And what I mean by that is as the world tries to pull you in, with wealth and success and whatever, 
like a new car. I was looking at new cars today. I don't know why I can't afford a new car. It was just interesting to me. There's all these things that can distract us. And so as Christians, we have to be alert. We have to know where our destination is. Because here's what's true. This is kind of a dumb metaphor, so if you don't get it, just laugh, please, for me. Google Maps or Apple Maps. Okay, you can use either of them. It doesn't matter. I don't have an opinion. But they can only take you as far as you know the place that you're going. Does that make sense? Like, I can't just type in, like, Ryan's house, and then it's like, oh, yeah, I know exactly where you're going, right? Like, I need an address. I can't just say, uh, show me that mountain I saw uh, a month ago, and they're like, oh, yeah, sure, like, that's where you're going. You have to know at least the address to get to where you need to be, okay? And so, page four, there I am. I need to know addresses, otherwise Google Maps is of no use to me. And so what I'm going to try to do tonight is give you kind of the address of heaven, but not in like a super specific, formulaic, one, two, three way of this is how you get there. What I want to do instead is I want you to realize and have a longing stir up in your soul for this thing that Christians are so hopeful about. And so just to kind of get us in that mindset, I want to read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. You can turn there if you want. We won't be, like, spending a ton of time in that, but that's where we'll start today. Um, These are words that Jesus himself actually read um, later on in the Bible. You can reference that in Luke chapter 4. But this this is what it says, 61, verse 1 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God. To comfort all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. And when you go to that moment in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says right after reading that, that that prophecy like these, these really comforting words, are actually accomplished today in your hearing. And what I'm saying to you is that the same could be true for you. That if you're feeling brokenhearted tonight, you could be bound up. If you're feeling like a captive, you could feel free. It's going to be good. So, where are we going? Tonight's going to be divided into four parts. Okay, We're going to be talking about Eden, Babel, Jesus and Zion. Eden, Babel, Jesus and Zion. And this is intentional by me for this reason. If we're going to find out where we're going or how to get there, first we have to figure out where we have been, right? It's like pretty common sense. We need to orient our steps along a road to make sure we're not running backwards away from Zion, but instead forwards and towards it, okay? So let's talk about Eden. But before we can really even talk about Eden, we need to talk about heaven and earth, Because before the creation account ever gets to Eden, the first sentence of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Heavens and the earth, they seem to be like two distinct categories of space for us. Heaven being where like God and his angels live. Earth being where like all the rest of his created things are, including humans. 
And there's like so much to unpack in just like that little part, but I don't have time, and I'm sorry, but you should learn about it at some point. I don't know how. Just figure it out. That's not helpful. Anyway, they appear to be two distinct categories of space. Heaven's where God and his angels live. Earth is where the rest of his creation lives. But humans are given like this really unique status, like they're, they're uniquely loved and precious to God, and so he decides to live with them, right? Like inhabit the same place that they inhabit. And you would think like, okay, like heaven and earth, like, like God just kind of like hops over to earth and like is hanging out with us. But what, what actually happens, the way that the Bible story kind of depicts it is that heaven and earth are like coming together like a Venn diagram, you know what I'm saying? And that little overlap has like a very specific name. And that name is called Eden. It's a garden. And this is what Eden is. It's a garden, right? And the name literally translates to paradise. Translates to paradise. And this is so important because you have to understand what's going on here. Heaven is where God lives. Earth is where we live. But the place where those two places meet is called paradise. We didn't give it that name. God actually did. Paradise. And what was, what was paradise like? It was, it was a garden, right? We've already said that three times. It's a place where food was abundant. Life was growing constantly. It was also a place where we worked, but the work wasn't tiring. It was joyful. The sun was bright, but it never burned us. We didn't need sunscreen or clothes because you were also never cold. And in fact, you were never even being, um, feeling shame because you were naked. Like it's completely outside of like our, our normal way of thinking about life. It's totally a different situation, this Eden, this paradise. It's unlike anything you've ever seen on earth. And the main goal of paradise is that it would fill the entire earth and the entire creation. That through God and his people, humans, working together, um, taking care of this garden, that it would eventually grow and, and fill the whole earth with God's glory. Okay? That's what you need to know. But what, what happens? What, what ends up happening, right? Like we get, we get the picture. It's like we're enjoying evening walks with God at our side. The garden's going well every day. The garden's expanding. God's glory is going all over the earth. But one day there's an opportunity presented to us, right? Will we keep this thing, this cooperation between God and man going? Or will we try to do it on our own? You may have heard about this, right? Like the fruit that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat. But there's so much more at stake than just like breaking a rule, right? Like it's a statement of regarding whether or not we trust God. Like do we trust him, do we not? Is God for us or is he not? Or maybe he is, but there, there could be something better out there for us. What will we do? What if we do if there's something better for us but we never experience, experience it? What's at stake here isn't just being a good or a bad person. What's at stake is having a relationship with the one who made you. Right? It's like, like a parent to a child. Would we look at our parent, like our, our father, our God, as someone who makes rules and boundaries for our flourishing and not to oppress us? That's what's at stake with the fruit. And we know how the story goes, right? Like Adam, Eve... They choose to eat it. And in that moment, they break their relationship with God. And what happens is that there's a brand new way to define humanity. 
Humans are no longer defined as the people who are cooperatively working with God to bring his glory. Instead, they are regarded as the people who once knew him and rejected him. People that saw his splendor and his glory and walked away. Sin is more than just the moral breakdown of humanity. It's not the reason why we make bad choices alone. It's the constant reminder of our broken relationship to God. And the most predominant way that we feel this mark, this new definition of humanity, is now death is a reality for each and every single one of us. Because we broke God's rules, yeah, that's true. But what's also true is that it's because God and man don't live together anymore. God is in heaven, we are on earth, but there's no garden of Eden. There's no paradise to be had for us. So what will humans do, right? Well, they keep, they keep working, they keep having kids, they keep raising families, and eventually we get to this place in Genesis called the Tower of Babel, right? Again, I don't have a lot of time to dig in here and explain all the details, but here's what's going on. Instead of using the earth and like all of its potential to grow and make things live and, and be great, basically, uh, and spread the glory of God, we decided, you know what? What if we all just stayed right here in this city together? We named it Babel. We worked together. We didn't spread all over the earth. But instead, we made a tower up to the heavens, up to God, so that we could live there and other people would notice us. That's like what they say. Now, hopefully you're catching on. Humans on earth, right, trying to get to heaven where God lives, but without him this time. Okay? It's like we're trying to rebridge that divide with God, but we're doing so without his help. Imagine it like this. Like, the idea of this is, like, insane, right? It's like, imagine you're in your apartment, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? It'd be, like, super sweet if I had my neighbor's apartment, too. And you're like, I got a great idea. I'm going to tear down the whole wall dividing my neighbor's apartment and my apartment, and I'm just going to live in the, all of it. So you do that, and you, and you break down, and you're like, you're definitely not getting your security deposit back for that, by the way. Like, you, you break down the wall between the apartments, and you just start living there and completely disregarding what that other person's life is and like that, the fact that they're just like a person in general. That's like what humans are trying to do at the Tower of Babel, right? Like they're trying to force their way into heaven without God, even though he lives there. That's like mind-blowing to me that like, that's like our solution to the problem. But the, the problem was is even as they were building this tower, they still felt the sting of sin the whole time. So Babel was like this really interesting place where all the humans agreed on everything for once and like they decided to work together to get to heaven. It was like this really weird like human cooperative effort. It was like the pinnacle of like human achievement and cooperation, right? And they're like living together, and they're building this tower, but what's also true is that they were also dying while they're making this tower. The problem remained. Death and sin were still in the world. No amount of human effort could bridge that. No amount of human effort could fix that. And so what does God do? Like he comes down from heaven, kind of toddles down. He looks at what they're building, which is ironic because they're like, yeah, man, I, like, I got this tower. It's got to be, like, a great tower. It's, like, going to go all the way up to heaven. And, and then God kind of, like, stoops over, like, a, a parent might, like, their kid's, like, building a Lego set. And he's kind of like, what you building there? Kind of like Isabel, like, tells, tells, like, tells Phineas that every episode of Phineas and Ferb. 
If you've never seen Phineas and Ferb, I am sorry for you. It is a wonderful show. It teaches you a lot. Good stuff. A lot of good songs. Anyway, when God sees their aim, right, when he sees what they're trying to accomplish, he scatters them all over the whole world. Like, imagine you were one second, you're like, hey, man, can you give me that brick? And then you replied, and you said, which is Chinese for, yes, of course I can give that to you. It's actually Mandarin. It's more than just Chinese. Anyway, like, how freaked out would you be? You're sitting there, and you're like, dude, I'm just trying to speak English, and you're messing my whole world up. But you like, in the midst of like all the confusion, you're kind of hearing like these sounds, and you're like, I think I understand what that person's saying, so I'm going to go hang out with them. And these people, like, I can't understand them, so we're all just kind of going to go our separate ways. And we have to ask the question, like, why would God do that? <laughs> like, why would he just like come and mess up our whole career like that, you know? It's because God understands two things. Well, he actually like understands everything, but just bear with me. He understands two things. Number one. Even despite sin now being in the world and defining humans, he still wants them to live all over the earth so that one day his glory could still radiate throughout the entire earth. Okay? That part of God's command actually wasn't lost on us when we were kicked out of Eden. But secondly, God also understands that despite our best efforts to make a utopia, to make a perfect city, if it's without him, It would only be a temporary thing. It would only ever be a temporary thing. A perfect city without God is only as perfect as long as you live, right? Because even if you have like a great 80 years of your life, you're still going to die. And then what, like the next person's going to come and they're going to live 80 years and then they're going to die. And it goes on and on. What if God actually has something better in store for us? What if there was a city like Babel that we could live in in harmony and in cooperation of effort between man to man, but without the effort of trying to get to heaven on our own and dying in the process? And what we see, right, Tower of Babel is in Genesis 11. And in Genesis 12, the very next chapter, we see like this very straightforward plan that God has to save the world to get humanity back to his home and his paradise. And there's so much that happens like from that point into the rest of the Old Testament, but to keep with our theme, this is what you need to know for tonight. I'm skipping over like 40 books of the Bible, so just bear with me. It's part of the plan that God has to bring his, like, his children back home to him are these things called the tabernacle and the temple. And you're like, okay, those are really big T words, and I don't really care. Let me explain. The tabernacle, the temple's not a big word. I don't know why I said that. The tabernacle, it's basically like this big tent. Like, think Coachella, but like, Coachella, Coachella. I don't know. I've never been to Coachella. I don't even know what it looks like. I'm just saying that. Okay, so it's this tent. It's like 15 feet wide. It's 15 feet tall, but it's also like 45 feet long. You bearing with me? It's like a rectangular prism. There's a big word for you. Okay, so we have bigger tents today, um, but that tent was special, Okay. This is why that tent was special. God had told his people exactly how to make it. And at that point of the tabernacle, um, it, would, it would have like these plants. It would be fragrant. It would be beautiful. It would be made with gold. It would be like a slice of Eden. Okay? Like a little slice of paradise where man and God could once again be in the same place together. 
but it wasn't as good as Eden because, like, let's be honest, 15 by 45, that's kind of small, right? But more importantly than that, like, only one person was ever allowed to be in the direct presence of God, and that was the high priest. And even he could only be in the direct presence of God once a year. And so you're talking about, like, yes, we have access to God, but it's so limited. And even the high priest, he had to, like, veil his face And he couldn't even really look at the presence of God. Otherwise, he would just die on the spot because he was so holy and he was so good and he was so glorious. He would just fall down dead. They would actually, like, tie ropes to the poor guy. So, like, if anything went wrong and he just fell dead, they could just pull him out. Like, I'm I'm being serious. That's nuts. That probably actually happened. Like, how sad would that be if, like, you were just, like, walking in and then you just died and someone had to, like, pull you out? I don't know. That's, That's just so weird, man. So anyway, they, they have this tabernacle, they have this tent, it's very limited access to God. But then they also eventually build a temple. And the temple is just like a bigger tabernacle, okay? It has more gold in it, it's more permanent, it's kind of this bigger representation of what um, this whole like restoration to God thing is all about, right? But the problem is, is it's still not as good as Eden, Right? The same rules still apply. Only one person, one time, one year can still go and actually be in the presence of God. It's not as good as Eden. It's not as accessible as Eden. So what's going to happen? What's going to fulfill our longing to have a relationship with him that's restored? What's going to make us long for a better city or a better home or a better temple to live in? And that's when Jesus comes on the scene. In the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, he says, The word of God became flesh, and he dwelled among men. Which sounds like really cool, right? Like, God, flesh, and man, and man, and it's great. But what's actually, like, way more important than just God, like, coming to dwell with men as a man, the Greek translation of this word, dwelled, right? Like, what does it mean? It means, like, tabernacled. Like, he came to, like, make a place where God's world and man's world met again, but this time it was in flesh, it wasn't in a building. Okay, you tracking with me? That's weird. Jesus came to be like a tabernacle or a temple of flesh, flesh and bone, so that anyone who came into contact with him would experience heaven. They would experience God's dwelling place on earth, man's dwelling place paradise. And we see throughout Jesus' life, he's everywhere he goes, he's like healing people of their illnesses, he's forgiving them of their sins, he's feeding thousands of people, and the people just want to be around him, or most of them do, but some actually see what he's up to, and they see all of the great things that he's doing, and he's still rejecting them. That same problem that goes all the way back to page one of the Bible rejecting God is still apparent, except this time, instead of us just getting abandoned from a garden being left on earth, they sentence Jesus to death. They reject him so much, they actually kill him on a cross. Like this walking paradise, this this guy that everywhere you would come to see him, you'd see joy and mercy and love and righteousness flowing out of him, is now hung on two planks of wood, And he's even telling them before they're about to do this, he's saying, hey, you can destroy this temple of God, pointing at himself, but in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. 
So what was he doing on the cross anyway? Like, why, why didn't he even have to, have to do that? Like, if he was already a walking paradise, like, what's the point of Jesus dying and coming back to life three days later? Because what Jesus was doing in that moment as every drop of blood and water came out of his side and his head and his wrists and his ankles, he was bringing heaven to earth. Okay, like as like his body is just being emptied of its life, he's actually pouring it into the dirt that he created. And ultimately the difference between Jesus dying on a cross and dealing with like a tabernacle or a temple is because Jesus actually deals with the root problem of humanity, which is sin. Right, like that rejection problem we have with God. Jesus' blood paid the price for our rebellion, our rejection of God, so that everyone who believes in him will what? They'll have eternal life. Like John 3.16, right? Like God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but experience eternal life, right? And like, that seems like such a bottom shelf answer for all of this, but that's what's true. Jesus came not only to deal with your sin, but also to give you so much more. And we're going to dive into that because this is what it means. If you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus died and three days later rose from the grave, guess what? God lives inside of you. Okay? God lives inside of you. His Holy Spirit now is dwelling in your body. What does that mean? It means that you, like Jesus, are walking around constantly in a state where heaven and earth are meeting. Paradise, right? That's the promise of Christianity for your life today. That if you accept Jesus' death and resurrection, that can be your story. You can be constantly in a state where you are walking paradise. That's what's true. God's spirit is coming to live inside of you and it's not messing around. It wants to completely change everything about your lives. Because everywhere you are is where God is and where heaven and earth meet. It's called paradise. But even that isn't the end of the story. Right? There's so much more to look forward to because even now today, we still experience sin daily, right? Like we have to choose whether or not we're going to obey the Holy Spirit, whether or not we're going to obey God, or if we're not. Like that's the reality. We can either choose to live by God's standards or reject it every day. And that, that doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you're an unbeliever. Like you can make that choice. But what if I told you that there would be a day coming that rejecting God would no longer be a choice because you would finally see your king in his majesty and his splendor? That's the hope that you have to hold on to. You have to know that one day you actually don't need to struggle with your sin anymore. You need to know that someday you will see the reward of faith and it will be worth everything you suffered to get there. Like, it's not like the mountain that I went on my honeymoon that I thought the view would suck and I've never seen it. And I still don't know because I've never seen it. What we're talking about is coming to a place that you can finally call home. And not just home for 20 or 30 years or 4 years or however long you choose to live somewhere. It's somewhere you can call home forever. It's somewhere that is so 
glorious and it's so perfect in all of its ways you would never want to leave. Because one day, God will remake the heavens and the earth. Which sounds cool, but like, what does that even mean? Like, is he going to like recycle us or like, I don't know. Here's what it looks like. <laughs> We're going to jump to Revelation 21. I'm going to stop giving my bad examples and just go to the Bible. Revelation 21, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, they had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither should there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the old order of things has passed away. The old way of life is gone in this new place. And that might sound great, but then you might be saying, like, what does this place actually look like? We're going to drop down to verse 12 in chapter 21. It's going to tell us. This city, it had a great high wall, 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, that sounds like a lot of details. We'll unpack it in a bit. The one who spoke to me, he had a measuring rod of gold. Wow, that's weird. Measuring the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, which is like a square, but it's like four of them put together to make a bigger square. You see what I'm saying? It's the length. It's the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. I don't know what that is. Its length and its width and height are equal. It's a cube, I guess. He also measured its wall. It has a wall. It's 144 cubits wide by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, just so you didn't know. The wall was built of all of these crazy kinds of precious jewels, almost any of them you can think of except for diamond for some reason. I don't know why. The gates, they're made with pearls. But not just pearls, but like a, a pearl. Each gate was made out of a pearl. Okay, like the biggest pearl I've ever seen or like known to man is like four feet by like a foot. And it's kind of like a little rectangle thing. Okay, we're talking about like a gate of a city that's like 12,000 stadia, right? That's a big pearl and there's 12 of them. But here's where it gets good. I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or shine. For the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The question tonight is, yeah, do you know where you're going? Do you know that, like, Zion is, like, legitimately between the size of India and Australia? 12,000 stadia is, like, 1,320 miles. So that's, like, really big. <laughs> like, really big. It's, like, 415 New York cities. To put that into context. 
the question is not that you know where you're going, but like, is your name written in this book of life? Okay, because for those of you that don't, like even if you really like the idea of this city and it sounds really cool to you, but you don't, like, you don't care about Jesus and what he's done for you and you're not, your name's not written in the book of life, you will never get there. Because it says, like, anyone who's done anything detestable or anything false, it's like, shoot, I'm both of those things, right? You'll never get there. But what Jesus did on the cross when he was dying is he was taking that rebellion, he was taking a rejection of God, and he was putting it on himself, and when he rose three days later, he basically ensured that if you believe in that, this is the end of your story. You'll get to see a city someday that streets are paved with gold. Okay, like Solomon was like one of the richest kings ever. He had like forks of gold. God's like, I'm going to do you one better. Here's like a, a measuring stick of gold, which is like hilarious. And streets of gold. He paves his streets with gold. It's completely out of our capacity for imagination. But doesn't that make you want to long for it? Like, do you understand that when you believe in Christ, your name gets written in a book of life? And so when you get to that day and God says, like, hey, why should I let you into my pearly gates? Which apparently is like an accurate saying about heaven, which is like unfathomable to me that there was one. Thank you. <laughs> when he says, why? Why should I let you in? Do you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say you shouldn't. Like, honestly, you really shouldn't. I'm a messed up person. Uh, and if you don't know me that well, then you don't know how messed up I am. So come get to know me. You'll know how messed up I am. I don't know where I'm going with that. Anyway, and this is the point. I know that if I had to build my own tower of Babel to get to God, I would never make it. Okay? I would never make it. But when Jesus can come and say, it's okay, I understand that you couldn't make it, so I made a way for you. I actually bridged that gap between heaven and earth, and that through me, through me, Jesus, there's actually a place where heaven and earth can be one again, and it's in me. Like, I want that. And I hope that you want it too, because heaven, it's, the, it's this kind of place. It's a place where even sad things are happy. It's a place where hopeless situations are hopeful. And the reason why heaven can invade your life tonight is because your Father in heaven lives inside of you. Like the reality of like, how can we get heaven to invade our lives, right? Like the truth is it already has if you're a Christian. Heaven has already come to you. It's already living inside of you. And it's what propels us to do the good works that we want to do because God is so good and we want to make him known. We want other people to see how great this king is. We want other people to come to this city that's so big I can't even imagine. Your father in heaven lives inside of you. Listen to him. Because if you're walking with him for your life, Every bump in the road and everything that seems to go wrong will actually work out to your benefit someday in Zion. Every sad thing that you've ever encountered will be made joyful. Every false thing that you see will become true. Will you pray with me? Father, it's, uh, 
it's a crazy thing to be able to talk to people about heaven and just rest and know that um, we could never actually do a good job of describing it because you've made it something so wonderful, something so unique, something so full um, that it's really hard for us to think about as broken humans. So I ask tonight that even um, now that you would start to whet our appetite for heaven, that we can realize that heaven's invading our lives actively because you're invading it, not because not because we're working our way towards it. Jesus, will you be in this place tonight? Will your spirit reign? Would we be obedient to it? Would we look forward to the days of our lives with joy, knowing that we have a home and that you're preparing it for us? God, and that one day we'll get to rejoice with all of your people and know you forever because we will see you and we'll become like you because we will see you as you are.